0: Welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Robin Houghton.
1: And I'm Peter Kenny. And today we're looking at arrivals and departures.
0: Peter interviews Rona McAdam and looks back at her six volumes of poetry and anticipates the forthcoming collection, Larder. Peter and I discuss Rachel Boast and Jackie Wills. Plus,
1: emerging poets. Who on earth are these people?
0: Hmm, are they young? Are they old? Or are they... Anyway... Let's start with a poem. Have you got something for us, Peter?
1: Yeah, it's The City by C.P. Cavafy, Um, and it goes with our uh, travelling theme. You said, I'll go to another land, I'll go to another sea. Another city will be found, a better one than this. Every effort is doomed by destiny, and my heart, like a dead man, lies buried. How long will my mind languish in such decay? Wherever I turn my eyes, wherever I look, The blackened ruins of my life I see here, Where so many years I've lived and wasted and ruined. Any new lands you will not find, You'll find no other seas, The city will be following you, In the same streets you'll wander, and in the same neighbourhoods you'll age, and in these same houses you will grow grey. Always in this same city you'll arrive, for elsewhere, do not hope, there is no ship for you, there is no road, just as you've wasted your life here in this tiny niche, in the entire world you've ruined it. That's a nice cheery one, isn't it? (laughs)
0: That's exactly how I feel sometimes the last few months, that nothing's, we're never going to go anywhere.
1: But Yeah, what I like about that is because Greek poetry is all full of travelling between islands and so on, and this kind of poem is talking about essentially wherever you go, you're going to take the city, your own place, your own personality, everything about you, with you. So there's no escape.
0: Oh, but that's true, though. In a way, that's true, isn't it? Let's hear now what Rona McAdam had to say when she spoke to Peter recently.
1: Born in Duncan, British Columbia, Rona McAdam is the author of six collections of poetry beginning with 1984's Life in Glass, Hour of the Pearl, Creating the Country, Old Habits, Cartography, and in 2014, *Exville*. A brand new collection, as yet unnamed, is in the final stages of completion. With poetry infused with departures and arrivals, absent lovers, lost family, and passionate encounters, I'd like to welcome Rona McAdam to the Planet Poetry podcast.
2: Thank you, Peter.
1: So, Rona, for those who don't know you, where in the world are you? And what's life like there right now?
2: I'm in Victoria, British Columbia. So I'm on the east coast of the west of Canada Um, sorry the east coast of Vancouver Island on the west coast of Canada I'm quite well actually the um, pandemic craziness is here as well but not as rampant as in the UK and um, I have a house and garden and dog to walk so I'm doing all right actually.
1: Do you find your uh, routine
2: untroubled? Well, in an odd way, it's actually helped me write because I had been working at um, a, a nutrition school for several years, and I left that job at the end of August. Uh, actually, quite a bit to do with uh, COVID. Um, the office policies were not to my liking, so I've been meeting with my poetry group from London through zoom and that's given me deadlines and i've been writing quite a lot actually yeah jobs get in the way of, of uh, poetry i find
1: they certainly do <laughs> i think a lot of big poetry is being written in recent months so you're a poet whose career has bridged you know between canada and the uk and you spent time in italy for at least a year how important is where you live to your poetry
2: I'd say it's actually not that important. What I've been finding, especially reflecting on this past year, is that uh, I need an audience to write. And so my most productive times have been when I've been in a writing group. I used to go every February to a monastery on the Canadian prairies Uh and uh, watch the snowfall and hang out with 20 or 25 other writers and artists. It was absolutely wonderful. And I wrote a lot of poetry there because you'd get ideas chatting over lunch and things like that. And then you'd have an audience to share them with or somebody in mind when you were writing it. So that was terrific. I've also gone to the Arvin courses a few times and that's been good yeah. and and the BAM Center. Um, they had some great workshops there, though that may not continue. They've got a a fairly conservative government right now who I think is more interested in conferences than artistic endeavors.
1: In rereading your work recently, there was a poem from your very first collection, uh, which was Life in Glass, that I thought might be a nice little opener.
2: Good for you for identifying the publication date, uh, because that was the typo in this collection. Was it claimed to be published in 1974 instead of 1984. I think I'd actually rather have people think I published it when I was 17. So anyway, this poem is almost gone. It's been weeks now, months since I've known I was leaving, wandering these rooms like a traitor, breathing in the stale air. I brace myself for the day of your knowing. There are no words I can offer you, no way to justify my needs held up against yours. Your needs have my name. You will part from me, puzzled, slight air of the hangdog. I will bow my head, avert my eyes, and run holding my hands to my ears so not to hear you make me stay again.
1: What I like about that is it sort of rings all sorts of uncomfortable bells about what it is to leave somebody, that sense of knowing that you're going but kind of trying to scrape together the courage to do it. Your work is peppered with departures and arrivals and being in strange places and moving from A to B. And and to me, that was a really early example of you just about to leave somewhere. That was published in your early 20s. How did you get going on your poetry? You know, that's your first collection. What was life like for you as a, a young Canadian writer?
2: Well, i actually started writing poetry in, in school. Uh, I used to write insulting little ditties about our teachers or um, the circumstances in which we found ourselves because I was in a boarding school, which is quite unusual for a Canadian. And then um, I had some early encouragement from a teacher who told me um, that he'd heard I wrote competent student verse. And that was enough to really um, give me- Praise (laughs) indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was. And um, so that that I actually carried with me. Teachers are very influential when they, they don't know it, I'm sure. I took two creative writing classes when I was in university. And I always thought I would write fiction, but I didn't have enough of a portfolio, so I ended up in poetry. And I just stayed there. Yeah, I was, I was starting to write just when creative writing and poetry were finding a, a place in Canadian literature. I, I think up until that point, I would have been bowled over if anybody told me there was such a thing as a live Canadian poet. We just assumed that everybody we studied was, you know, dead in English. Or you know, we did have a few dead Canadians as well. Yeah, it was early days and there was very little of MFA program that has overwhelmed the market now i think university of british columbia i think had one of the first programs and they attracted a lot of uh, i think people with um i i say this without really understanding much about it other than it was told to me but the black mountain poets and that um that was a very influential movement um so charles olson and ginsburg and people like that I guess we got the the influence through our our teachers and what was being published. Um, There were people like Margaret Atwood who started life as a poet, and like a lot of of writers at that time, started presses so that they could actually publish themselves and their friends. And there was quite a lively movement with that. Outside the Canadian poetry that I was experiencing through proximity, I guess, um, I was in Alberta at the time, so um, we had a prairie poetry community. Outside that, I didn't really know much about what was being published elsewhere. I think it was my visit to the UK in um, 1988 (laughs) um, that opened my eyes. I went to the Cheltenham Literary Festival, for example, and heard Carol Ann Duffy and Gillian Allnut and Donald Atkinson and, and quite a few other people and just really enjoyed that whole new approach to poetry and new voice, new to me.
1: Australians talk about having a sort of cultural cringe, or you know, somebody like Clive James, I remember talking about it it seems to me with uh, Canadian artists like I remember when I first went to Toronto and saw works by the group of seven Paul or Emily Carr and I just thought these people are absolutely fantastic it was almost like the Canadians were sort of downplayed them a bit you know and you go to that um, museum in Toronto and it's full of wretched Henry Moores and you've got these marvellous Canadian art upstairs did you think there's anything like that for literature too
2: Oh, probably. I mean, we haven't had much in the way of formalists, but we've had um, people who probably would hate to be called experimental writers now versus more um, conventional writers. Um, And now there's a lot of spoken word and there's a lot of Indigenous writing being published. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are trends happening all the time. But um, I think at the time I started writing, there was great national pride in suddenly having a Canadian voice at the table. You know, in Canada, we feel our youth and our relatively sparse population quite keenly when it comes to our artistic endeavours, I guess.
1: I think it's time for another poem. Your second collection, Hour of the Pearl, I think it's true to say this was the one that really began to launch you in Canada and and was what you were brandishing when I first met you in 1988. A beautiful book. So, Rona, can I ask you to read Seeing Him Off?
2: seeing him off tonight rain falls lightly freezing on pavement she watches the road leaning into the wheel as shadows fall over themselves on the empty seat beside her she accelerates leaving the parting behind her a distance she measures on the light poles sliding past with their shadows had it been daylight she would be feeling the shadow of the plane on her back a large silence crossing her path But tonight there is rain and dark, and he is removed from her in the warm, bright cabin, tended by smiling women who will not confuse him with intimacy, just see to his comfort, then withdraw into the humming night above the clouds. His destination he has packed and taken with him, leaving her the crumpled paper and dirty plates, the damp towel of his passage. She cannot imagine where he has gone his trip planned for so long and now so suddenly upon her. She's not sure what to do as she swings the door open into darkness, nameless shapes of his absence.
1: I think in your work, absence seems to go beyond mere loneliness. Absence motivates action and exploration. And if so, why is absence something you're drawn to write about?
2: I think, Peter, it all goes back to my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, as I mentioned, I, I went to boarding school. I went there when I was 11. Family moved up to northern BC. And I, in the way of discontented youth everywhere, wanted to be somewhere else. So it seems a kind of normal state of being to me.
1: I'd like to ask you to read Prairie Highway from Old Habits. This is the uh, first poem in the book. Uh, in my mind, this is one of your archetypal traveling poems.
2: Prairie Highway. Serpent of light, the road twists out of town, coils in upon itself, holding travelers to its face, giving them one more chance. Here on the flat line, the dirt yellow horizon, trucks run for each other against sky and separate, bolt to opposite poles, hugging the surface of bare undulation, the close skin of fields. Here on the flat line, the highway is new black, the still white dashes signal something below the eye line. Pass me, pass me. Beyond the valley, a gold skein of smoke unravels into sky. Something unknown burns an inescapable sign to travelers. I don't know where I'm going, this car hums. Bowing in the shadow of a truck that bellies a path to somewhere definite. Nothing aimless about 18 wheels and how many tons trailing smoke and the cellar-throated mumble of business. I don't know where I'm going, the car insists, shedding itself, rust sloughing in windstream, petals of gold dusting the road behind.
1: One of the things for a, for an English listener is the, uh, the sort of exoticism, that, that enormous kind of wide open North American landscape that... Uh, you know, when you're pottering about in the south of England, you just don't really get in the same way. The eye of the poem is saying, I don't know where I'm going. There's that cliche about travel being the destination in itself. What is the act of traveling for you? Uh,
2: a lot of the pleasure for me is in the planning. The execution can sometimes be quite stressful. Uh, yeah. Though I, I had a whole new uh, view of that when I was in London, and I was uh, working at a job that required a lot of business travel, and um, business class travel is is a whole new thing, and that made it very pleasant for me. In Canada, we do a lot of driving. You know, we've got a, a lot of distance here, so driving, I think, is quite calming. Airports and stations, I think, I find them quite comfortable. I'm As I say, I've been traveling since I was 11, so it gives you a chance to just sit and, and watch people and overhear snatches of conversation, it can be quite quite a good uh, observer sport.
1: <laughs> I, I read this book a few years ago now um, by this uh, French intellectual called Marc Auger, Non-Places, The Anthropology of Supermodernity. But he talks about places like uh, railway stations and airports, and because they're places where people are just passing through, nobody kind of builds a home there and no sort of community springs up everyone's in transit she talks about that as a very sort of dehumanizing experience but i you know i think writers are actually like yourself are quite attracted to that sense of drifting through the vast concourses of humanity listening to other people
2: well i think um poets sometimes really tend to gravitate to things that are uncomfortable or else are just using poetry as a way of de-stressing after a particularly uncomfortable or stressful experience. And That would um, explain everything. (laughs) Yeah. I actually did uh, at one time write a poem about being really uncomfortable. The the poem was called Summer Getaway, and I actually wrote it in a, a workshop that was all based on the theme of travel. You know, talking about how we're now reduced to codes and numbers and holograms, travel has become really unpleasant. If you can't write about it and simply have to experience it, it's it's got less value. I think I used to think that nothing could really get me down as long as I could write a poem about it.
1: Anybody who likes writing is a bit of a secret weapon, isn't it? That uh, to help you endure things. Can I ask you to read your poem "Shoes" from Cartography?
2: Speaking of uncomfortable things. Quite topical, really, given the mention of Doc Martens. Shoes. Castaways on the carpet, ruins of my feet, sometimes forgotten, trampling my closets, never good enough after the first kiss on the shoe shop's plush carpet. Shoes with the blues, shoes with half my wallet in them and then unwearable. Shoes with special insoles with broken laces. Never a Doc Martin, a Buster Brown, or a Penny Loafer. Once, a wallaby. Boots with buckled legs hold up the wardrobe walls and wait for snow. One pair can't be worn in rain, these I cannot be seen in. This pair makes my toes numb, these give me cramp. These ones aren't warm enough, in these the uppers cracked. One pair started creaking, another shows a toe. These ones keep them guessing where all the money goes.
1: Being dissatisfied with your shoes is a terrible thing. And uh, in the context of your poetry, I can't help seeing shoes as, you know, standing for the journeys you've made or have yet to make. You know, they're costly and painful and some that the eye of the poem can't be seen in. And we have to choose a pair and make a departure.
2: Yeah, I'd say I have a a difficult relationship with shoes. And I think really women's shoes are inherently destructive to your foot structure in any case. And then because I'm a tall woman, it was always a struggle for me when I was working in an office to try to look somewhat elegant without putting myself into further pain. So um, I've been quite happy during lockdown, actually, to uh, wear slippers all day.
1: Uh, I'm attracted to poetry about work because... If you just judged human society on literature, you'd imagine nobody did a stroke of work ever. (laughs) I really like this poem, A Living, from Exville. Would you read that for us?
2: A Living. For seven years I lived in the air, crossing meridians, slipping timeless between airports and offices. The earth became something I worked with my shadow, like a bird or a careful farmer harvesting sleep. I learned my job's language as my mother tongue took its seasons for my own, for work was the body that never aged. I breathed my job. I ate it. In time, it became my family, and I helped it grow. I fed it from my own plate. It was always hungry. One morning, I left for work and returned years later to a place where there had always been dogs and afternoon light, a flower cellar. Wrapping his perishable worlds.
1: That's a beautiful ending to that poem. I love that final s- suggestion of homecoming at the end and that almost waking from this terrible dream of work. <laughs> in your own life, do you think you, now that you're back in British Columbia, do you think, have you found home or are you, are you still straining at leash to go on new adventures?
2: So uh, I think I'll carry on traveling as long as I can. I I do have a more comfortable life here. It's easier to live here, for sure. But I think when you choose to live somewhere else, the choice makes you more committed to the place in a way, I guess. And having chosen London, which is not an easy place to live, the sacrifices you make to live there, you you kind of want to be dragged away kicking and screaming, which I was almost.
1: There's this... um distinction between the idea of a traveler and an exile and when I was thinking about those words in relation to you you know obviously there's the traveling but then I began to wonder if there was a sense of exile you know which country would you feel exiled from and and your story about going to boarding school and kind of being dissatisfied with being at home and being at boarding school does that kind of play out in your relationship with the UK and Canada as well?
2: I think it does I did, as you say, spend a year in Italy, um, and I never wanted to live there. I really enjoyed being there as a visitor. I was a student, a mature student, but I wasn't drawn to live there in the way that I think some of my classmates were. I didn't really identify with the culture, and at every opportunity, I would actually zip back to London and, and visit my friends there.
1: <laughs> what well, for that? some of that English food.
2: But the, um, that poem, A Living, was actually written in Italy. Uh, one of my classmates had been a, a high-level marketing executive, I think, for one of the, fashion, the Italian fashion firms. She was from Japan. And uh, we would try to celebrate everybody's birthday as it came up. And she said to us at this lunch that we had for her birthday that she actually hadn't celebrated her birthday for seven years because she'd never been home. Oh, and I started thinking about that, and what would that feel like? So,
1: well, it's a lovely poem. So I was lucky enough to see some of the new poems you've got beginning to become locked and loaded for the new collection. Uh, have you uh, arrived at a, a title yet?
2: Well, I handed over the question to my poetry group <laughs> because it's really hard for me to come up with book titles. And one of them suggested larder, which I think would be a good one. So I'm going with that. I like the simplicity of a one-word title. So this poem is about ants, but also about a fungus called cordyceps. I was thinking about Michael Pollan, who uh, has a book called Botany of Desire, in which he asserts that lawns actually control humans in order to perpetuate themselves. I kind of like the inversion of, um, you know, who's in charge here. I
1: had to uh, look it up on Wikipedia and I, I thought, what an astonishingly malevolent fungus this is.
2: Cordyceps. The ant has been infected with the need to climb. Its mind hollowed of the urge to tunnel through wood. Now it sees only the vertical bark. All it has left are the stars and the struggling up. While the fungus rides the ant's mind with the whips of instinct. Their needs are the same, and the ant climbs, carrying them together to the top of the tree where the fungus roots the ant to the branch, and fruits, sending its stars to the wind.
1: I find that very beautiful. I don't know if um, I'm overinterpreting this. So you've got a fungus that lives a kind of parasitic life on insects and here it infects an ant and uses it to ascend and all the ant has left are the stars and the struggling up and in your poem, ultimately sending its stars to the wind. Is there something about art and the artist in this poem or or am I just going completely off on a wrong tangent? Is poetry a kind of infection that dooms us to keep us moving?
2: Um, That's one way of looking at it, I guess. I think <laughs> I think poets, but I think other art forms too, you often hear poets in particular saying that weren't expecting a poem to come out the way it did or that they didn't necessarily set out to write the particular poem or the way it, it turned out. And also um, that we don't always expect the interpretations that other people may put on our poems. So I think in that way... Um, the control is shared between the the poet and the reader and the poet and the muse i guess the mm-hmm. muse would be the the fungus <laughs> <laughs> um, but when i found this story paul stamets um was talking about a further manipulation which was he was suggesting that this could be a way of for humans to deal with carpenter ants is to infect them with this fungus which will take care of the work i guess it's uh, It's a common practice in gardening too, where you get uh, biological assistance.
1: We suffer from snails and there's like nematodes, aren't they, that you can uh, dose the soil up with that becomes a kind of nasty interspecies war going on out there.
2: Exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So when can we expect to see you back in the UK? I mean, presumably you'll be back as soon as uh, all this business settles down a bit.
2: Um, When I have a new book in my hand, I'd like to come and do some readings i've found that my poems have been well received when i've read them in england and Mm. i really um, appreciate that well i've
1: certainly been enjoying your poems for for many decades now and it's been really lovely to have you on planet poetry
2: well it's been quite an honor to be here i'm really enjoying the podcast
0: Interesting, isn't it? One of the things that Rona said quite early on when she when you asked her about how important is where you live to your writing, and she said, Well, not really. And then she told us about how she would go to that monastic retreat to write and how having a, an audience, if you like, or people to read to and get feedback from every night kind of G'd her up, and that she that she felt she needs an audience to write. I thought that was Quite an unusual point, don't you? Often you hear the opposite, don't you, with poets?
1: I like the idea of it. I, I mean, I've only done it once or twice, and um, I suppose because I'm quite cautious about my writing, I don't really like holding it up the next day and saying, What do you think of this? Because I know, you know, in a week's time I'll look at it and cringe. Uh, and getting that feedback straight away probably saves you loads of time. Yes, yes, um, indeed. I don't want to keep banging on about, you know, having worked in advertising. But, you know you write something in advertising, and then, as soon as you've put your pen down or finished typing, you send it off to ten people who then come round to your desk later on and tell you where you've gone wrong <laughs> so with poetry, I feel far more precious about it
0: i agree i mean i'm I'm happy to workshop poems, but not when when they're very new. I tend to want to sit and Brood over them for a bit before showing them to anyone. But uh, but I just thought that was an interesting way of putting it, you know, needing it Yeah, well, po- poetry is for
1: other sense. people, isn't it? I mean, you're trying to connect with other people, so...
0: I think so. One well, wonders, though, sometimes. I think poets can be famously reclusive, can't they? It's quite a common thing, writing poetry and not wanting to show it to anyone and not certainly not sending it to anywhere for publication. I don't know anything about the Canadian poetry scene, so I was really interested to hear what Rona had to say about... When she started writing, and that sort of Charles Olson and the Black Mountain poets influencing her, and then the fact that people started presses so that they could publish one another, and I, of course I thought of you and I with Telltale at that point, and this idea of in Canada that because it's it's a you think it's a vast country, but of course the population's relatively small, and in Canada we feel our youth. Yes, that sounded like a poem in itself.
1: I actually went to Canada in 1989 and and I just uh, met Rona shortly before and I went to a writing group in Banff with her for a a week and it was just such an amazing place and it was my first time in Canada and I was utterly blown away. But what I felt was that the, the poets felt supported and valued and were very much about helping each other as well with this kind of small press network that was growing up. Oh, right. Um, And, uh, you know, I I didn't feel the same way about what I'd been experiencing in England at the time. Yeah. But it sort of enabled, um, you know, a young poet like Rona was then to get a flying start, really. And she had, you know, I think two books in her 20s.
0: I got a real sense of place. You know, our theme is departures and arrivals, isn't it? And she made it quite clear that she's done a lot of travelling and has had to go through the pain of separating. And I sort of sensed there's a bit of sadness in, in her about having had a slight rootlessness about her, although she's clearly very positive about having done all that travel. In my life, I had a short period of time when I was travelling a lot and I did find myself very rootless. And although it was exciting in in a way and another way, I look back and I think that was 10 years when I didn't make any friends outside of work. I didn't know my neighbours. I didn't get involved in anything local. Maybe I'm just projecting myself onto her.
1: (laughs) But she's had six volumes of poetry published yeah. so far, and got another one cooking called Larder. She just decided that just as we were preparing for the interview, she she's got a group of uh, poets that she kind of zooms with in the UK, and to actually just f- farm out the decision of what you'd call your book is it, a, a quite an interesting move, isn't it? Because she just freely admits that titles of books are not really her thing. Um, yeah,
0: well, it's back to that sort of openness about collab, not collaboration, but openness to sort of. Um, to ask the question and and to receive feedback, I suppose, isn't it?
1: And actually sort of take it up.
0: Yeah, uh, indeed, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> not just pay lip service to it. Yeah, some of the poems I thought she read were really beautiful. Seeing him off, I really liked that one. That's one of the I think I may, was that one of the earlier poems and then Prairie Highway. There's this lovely sense of the plains and the big sky and the distances. It reminded me of a book i read some time ago by jonathan rabin he's a a travel writer a a british person who has lived in america for a long time and this book was all about his trip through montana and looking at the history of the settlers there when the railroad first was built uh, heading west and he kind of pieces together the history of the first people to settle and some of them made it and some of them didn't. They were defeated by the, the loneliness and the vastness of it and the climate.
1: So I've lived with uh, Rona's books for decades now and I uh, keep dipping back into them. It's quite a privilege when you know a, a poet through, you know, decades of their career and her books are well worth checking out. There's, she's got a fine body of work and I'm really looking forward to the new one, Lada.
0: Me too. Good interview.
1: We were talking recently about how you read poetry, because there's the temptation to sort of present your reading as like, I read this entire book, and here's my kind of thoughts about it. Whereas I think, do you read books like that?
0: Occasionally. I did set myself the task a few years ago on my blog of reading three collections a week. I mean, it it didn't go on for very long, because I found it quite you know, it's quite a lot of work. But it, what it did do is it it made me sit down and, as you say, read it from cover to cover, not just dip in and out. And I started to see that there were lots of things that I would otherwise have missed, you know, connections between the poems, et cetera. And, and I realised that... Um, perhaps poets and editors have done a bit of work in ordering their poems in this particular (laughs) way and they would like us to read them in order but these days no I haven't done that for a while I tend not to read the whole thing unless it's the sort of thing where I start and it just pulls you through
1: Caleb Femi's book Paul that I I just read that in one sitting
0: yes when I read Ilya Kaminsky's Deaf Republic I read that cover to cover because that really does it is a, a story it's sort of epic kind of pulls you through and you just want to know what's what's happening next so yes but if it's a collection of of poems in the sense of it being not necessarily a storyline a narrative then I don't tend to read the whole book in one go and you're right quite often I'll have read bits of it at different times and there are some things I'll go back to.
1: Certain books that I, I kind of never get to the end of but I I enjoy them tremendously and there's um, one of these books is uh, Rachel Boast's Void studies. Uh, oh yes. I, when I when you start to like a book, it's it's almost like liking a person, because uh, some of my best friends are people that when I first met them I got on my nerves. And when I first encountered Void Studies, uh, I thought this there's something kind of annoying and troubling about this. What what's happened is that I keep going back to it, and I'm I've actually really fallen in love with it. And it's it's quite an obscure idea, based. On some poems, the French symbolist poet Arthur Rambeau, who lived between 1854 and 1891, Wikipedia tells me, gave uh, like a brief he gave to himself about poems he should write, but he never got round to writing. And they were called Etudes Néantes. Uh, They were sort of supposed to be like musical etudes and, you know, not conveying any direct message. The blurb on the back of the book has got that, and there's notes at the back about, you know, Rambo's Etude Néant, and it sort of invites a intertextuality. You know, makes you want to think, well, what's the whole Rambo b- angle to this? And I found that just simply reading the poems themselves and dipping in, I've become to really love them. They're, they're enigmatic and they kind of flirt with silence. They don't give too much away, and they just make you want to come back. And I, I find I read, say, pick up the book and read three or four of the poems. And it's enough food for thought. And, you know, you find yourself pierced by weird moments of beauty that are quite insubstantial and cloud-like. An extraordinary book, and I haven't read anything like it recently.
0: I'm sorry, just to jump in, that because I think that's a good point, that sometimes you can dip in and read one or two poems even, and you've got enough th- food for thought, as you put it, to keep you going. I almost have to close the book sometimes at a point where I'm thinking, I would actually just like to let that poem sink in and, and let it permeate me for, for longer rather than keep going. Most of the poems are very short and sort of yeah. dense.
1: Yeah. Um, there's this poem Quicksilver. The more I look, the less there is of me On a clear day by the edge of the water in the moment when a memory surfaces of the thoughts of another who at the time said nothing, but in a sudden movement of their hand held the silence as if it were a living thing. Sleep creature, caught in a wave transmitting, as now, the same reflected light dreaming rapidly along the length of a willow tree. You can picture somebody standing by a river and just thinking about time and silence and all kinds of other things that just seem slightly out of reach. But it's a poem that, and there are so many like this that, you know, I keep returning to and think how enigmatic and beautiful and gesturing towards things that most poets don't write about.
0: I've been reading uh, Jackie Wills, her collection called A Friable Earth, which is published by. Arc. I came across Jackie quite a long time ago. I mean, she's Brighton based, so she's on our manner. She's, a, she's a, a fine poet, uh, a former journalist and a very good tutor as well. I've, I've taken part in her workshops before now. The first book of hers I came across that I really enjoyed was called Woman's Head as Jug. And that's from about six or seven years ago, I think now. She writes about human scale, nature, and human nature in all its gory glory, and she's very matter-of-fact. She'll write about the nature of gardens and allotments and its experienced places. That's what I like, I think. It's very much from her experience. It's not talking about nature in an abstract way. There's something very literally down-to-earth, grounded. She writes these meditations on, I suppose you might say, on ageing and death and the body and how it changes, but it's not in a morose way. It's it's realistic and it's right and it's celebratory. It's often very funny as well as moving. And, and many of her poems are very short, maybe two or three lines, but she, she packs so much into that. And I wonder if the journalist background has something to do with that. Doesn't believe in wasting words. Wrote um, some headlines
1: in her time, probably.
0: I expect so, yes, yes. May I read a poem from it? By 61. Somewhere there's a dump of wasted time where starting and not finishing, late trains, queues at a till, are lobbed into shipping containers with time spent stirring at TV dramas, free papers, doodles and mirrors to meet the hours waiting for repairs, on hold, renegotiating a contract. How many ways could I waste it? And is that what the cat does? Going out, coming in, going out again? Or watching nests being built? Half-hearted to the last, I couldn't name one important time waster of the past. Who wastes time the best? Is there a prize or a fellowship? An order of the sheepskin slipper? I'd like to think the worms will deal with it. My squandered decades passing through a blind pink streak living in the dark, so that wasted time, in time, like lettuce out of date or bolting, will turn itself into the real thing, where it began. So I like uh, the
1: idea that there's no t- time wasters remembered by history. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I thought that poem was quite relevant as well to the last year that we've had, where, um, I don't know about you, but I've spent an inordinate amount of time doing sudokus, and you get to... You get to the end of a tough Sudoku and then you think, that is half an hour of my life gone, you know, what What the hell am I doing? But sometimes I just need that break. So I think time-wasting definitely has its place and I like the idea of it all... It'll all come to the same in the end, won't it?
1: Does this yeah. qualify as a thorny issue, Robin, what you're well, about to say?
0: I, well, I don't know, it's uh, just... It's one of those things that comes again and again, doesn't it? Rears its ugly head. But there was something on Twitter this week. There was a tweet from Literature Wales uh, announcing an exciting opportunity for an emerging poet. I saw a comment on it from someone saying, actually, if you want an emerging poet, why the age limit? It's discriminatory. If you want a young poet, say so. The Scottish Poetry Library defined emerging by publications, achievements, not age. Literature Wales could do better. So, mm. and Literature Wales did respond, to be fair, and they fairly immediately said, sorry, yes, we've amended it. We've taken out the word emerging. So then I went to read what the opportunity was, and, yeah, it sounds very exciting, but it still doesn't make it clear until you get to the very bottom of the page that the opportunity is only if you're aged 18 to 30. Uh, so, um, yeah. so, yeah, OK, they 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 corrected that and they took out the word emerging, but this, there's this word emerging, isn't it? emerging new and young kind of get conflated and i don't know whether it's just people just not really thinking about it when they put down their promotional copy or whether it's people do still think oh yes young means emerging i don't know what do you think
1: yeah well obviously i always talk about myself and i think i'm i'm still <laughs> I think even at 61 i think uh, yeah I'm, I'm still to emerge i still cling to this fiction that i'm uh, emerging still <laughs> But the boomers have had their day. All these old fossils like myself have, you know, had their opportunities over the years. And it seems a bit kind of miserablist, doesn't it, to say, don't give those jobs to young people because we're emerging too.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is, there is that. There's also, what about those young people who have emerged and, and they're still reasonably young? Let's say they're between 30 and 40. Mm. They're in some kind of a no man's land. Of they've, they've done their emerging bit and they may or may not be fully established. So I think I'd be more annoyed about it the closer I was to the cut-off age. Yeah, but, that, that um, would be but... galling <laughs> to be
1: 31 or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, to be fair, yes, when, the more I think about it, I think I think a lot of organisations are making a big effort here. And there are opportunities for older emergers or older poets as well. I saw something the other day for people over, over 40 or something.
1: I mean, we were talking about... Um rambo earlier on and he'd he'd written everything he was going to write by 20
0: really yeah that's frightening isn't it
1: he he died when he was 36 of cancer but for the uh for those years he didn't write anything
0: wow i mean that's
1: apparently he didn't know anything about his own success until you know oh really when he died yeah his things were being published without his permission that had been um i don't not even sure if he knew about them that's Um, an
0: extraordinary tale isn't it
1: Talking about young people, I mean, when he was young, he was involved with this sort of passionate love affair, which ended up with him being shot in the wrist.
0: What, in like a jewel or something?
1: uh, No, a sort of lover's tiff with uh, Verlaine. Yeah, so that's where poetry got him, being shot at. So he left all that malarkey and went off trading or something.
0: Well, it does sound quite romantic, though, all that shooting at lovers and things, doesn't it? It's (laughs) It's of a period, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> like wilting away in an attic somewhere with smelling salts or something. Yeah, um, it would yeah. have worked
1: if he was English, would it? You would have sort of had a pass- passive aggressive cup of tea with him or something. <laughs> <laughs>